the construction industry as a whole is one of the most archaic, one of the most undigitized industries of every industry vertical. And that's causing direct ripple effects into the housing crisis. But taking a step back, Within the housing crisis, we have 1.6 billion people who are homeless today. That number is going to duplicate by 2030. You are listening to The Sure Shot Entrepreneur, a podcast for founders with ambitious ideas. Venture capital investors and other early believers tell you relatable, insightful, and authentic stories to help you realize your vision. Welcome to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. Today's guest is Julieta Morade. She's a partner at Home Team Ventures. We're going to learn about how Home Team invests in startups, what areas she focuses on, and her perspective on venture capital. Julieta, welcome to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here and especially part of all these people that are storytelling and helping founders. I'm looking forward to our conversation. I want to start with you, your story. You grew up all over the world, but your journey started in Buenos Aires, right? Tell us a little more about yourself. Yeah, I'm originally from Buenos Aires. My whole family actually lives there, except my parents and brother. They're in Boston. Both my parents are scientists, so they do cancer research. And for medicinal chemistry, back in the day, you had to really travel to different labs in order to do your PhD or postdoctorate studies. Well, from a very young age, I was on planes moving around all over Spain, all over the UK. And then they ended up doing their postdoc at OSU in Ohio. At the age of five, I was already living in a dorm with other university students. Every weekend, I was spending it in their labs, getting to play with helium and balloons always very immersed in education and science and technology. Then they got the opportunity to have a full-time job and get a visa in Canada. We ended up in Montreal, which is where I primarily grew up. I did elementary and high school there, which was interesting in itself because if anyone's been to Montreal, it's an incredibly international city. There's a lot of first and second generation immigrants. And on top of it, they have a very strict policy or law around the preservation of the French culture and language. My parents came to the U.S. and then to Canada speaking hardly any English. And then I arrive and they put me in English school to later find out that that's illegal. As an immigrant, you have to be in French school. In third grade, I was actually pulled out of English school, put into French school, and had to learn that really quickly. Traveling that much at a young age really immerses you into different cultures, people, languages, We ended up in Boston because during the economic crash, a lot of the pharma companies shut down in Montreal specifically. And there was an emergence of this science hub for pharma in Boston. They both ended up in Boston. And then I quickly followed after I graduated high school and lived on my own when I was 15 and then went to university at a very young age to Northeastern University. Long story short, from Buenos Aires, grew up all over the place, primarily in Montreal, and then ended up in Boston for college and then UC Berkeley for grad school. Campus life is fun. I see that you really enjoyed living close to educational institutions because your parents were both researchers. I grew up in a very similar household with academicians at home, tossing around books and papers all the time. I see that you went to Northeastern University. Northeastern has a very unique program that brings a practical aspect to education in addition to the academic side. Was that helpful to you? 
I honestly cannot recommend a co-op program more. If you're trying to pick a university, pick one that has some kind of internship program or co-op specifically. The way that co-ops program works specifically at Northeastern is that your undergraduate degree is actually five years instead of four. The whole idea is that you are learning within the academic bounds, so within classes, but then you're also learning on a job. I studied civil engineering, specialty in structural engineering. In the fall semesters, I would be in classes. And then spring and summer, so January through August, I was interning. I started university at 16 years old. How am I supposed to know what I want to do with my career 10 years, 15 years out from that age? What I was able to really do is within structural engineering, think of different kinds of internships that I was interested in that are very different from each other and understand what I like and specifically what I don't like. That's so important to do before you graduate because then you go into your actual career professionally and you have a way better idea of what does not speak to you and what does. And on top of that, you graduate with two years of experience. I don't know what percent, but I believe it's over 95% of students at Northeastern already have a job offer when they're graduating. That's massive for people and it allows you to also explore. I mean, when in life are you on a college campus surrounded by people of different ages and religion and culture, and you could explore different career paths depending on what you're studying. It was exactly what I needed at that time. At Sure Ventures, my venture capital firm, I've had many interns from Northeastern University, and it's a great joy to have fresh thinking, giving them the opportunity to experience venture capital. That's actually how I got into venture capital when I was an intern at a VC firm. So it's great that the school offers programs like that. So when you graduate, you actually have experience and you're not just a book nerd. You can actually add value in an organization. How did you enter venture capital? What attracted you to venture capital? That's a a pretty loaded question for me because it was incredibly serendipitous. Just to give you context, I did my undergrad and grad in structural engineering and architecture. I literally did not know what venture capital meant. If you would have asked me what an investor does a few years ago, I would have said, it's Wolf of Wall Street. It's Leonardo DiCaprio and they toss money and they invest in stocks and bonds. I had no idea what angel investing was, what venture capital was, what PE was. I could summarize a story in terms of how we launched our fund and how I even got into VC. Our story is very unique because we launched our venture fund one year ago as a spinoff from a nonprofit. The whole idea of why we started VC was because we saw an immense problem in the housing crisis and this idea that we need to innovate within construction. I know that at Home Team, you invest with a strong focus on real estate and your mission is to bridge the housing gap. You invest in early stage founders who solve problems in that area. How do you do that? What do you look for in startups? Yeah, within Home Team Ventures, we invest specifically in pre-seed and seed, so very early stage construction technologies and prop tech, real estate investments, all with a lens of can we reduce the cost of construction along the construction value chain? We believe if we're able to invest in these technologies that reduce cost and increase speed of building, we could then have a direct impact on reducing the cost of housing. We know that the construction industry as a whole is one of the most archaic, one of the most undigitized industries of every industry vertical, and that's causing direct ripple effects into the housing crisis. Taking a step back, within the housing crisis, we have 1.6 billion people who are homeless today. That number is going to duplicate by 2030. That means that within the same decade, we're going to have 3 billion people who are homeless. There's no way that with current construction methods, 
technologies and materials, we could build fast enough and cheap enough to actually provide that kind of supply. The lens that we're approaching it is, yes, we're a traditional VC fund. Yes, we believe that these construction technologies could have a huge impact on their business while also having an impact on the housing crisis. What we look for in founders is we look along the whole construction value chain, meaning pre-construction is you're finding land, you are surveying it, you're going through the design process, permitting, supply chain management, scheduling, then construction execution, you're actually building whatever you're building. And then post-construction is you're trying to actually occupy these homes in a more efficient way. There's some fintech plays, insurance tech plays in there as well. Along that construction value chain, does your technology reduce the cost of that bucket? If we take the example of surveying, the very first bucket along the value chain, if we're able to invest in a technology like our first portfolio company called Airworks, that completely eliminates the process of surveying and drafting, which is present in any construction project, then those are the specific areas we will look into. Does it reduce the cost? Does it increase speed while still maintaining quality? And can a developer in affordable housing use this? We invest very broadly within construction. It could be used for any construction project. Airworks for surveying could be used for a building, a bridge, commercial, at market rate housing. But it could also be used by governments that do informal settlements. It could also be used by developers that do affordable housing. That's really the lens that we look into. In terms of the kinds of founders that we are trying to find, of course, we do have that impact lens. We always want to work with founders that say, I know my business is going to scale a ton. I know that we're going to be very successful financially, but also I do care about how my technology could have an impact on the world, specifically on housing. Do they have that ambition? Do they have that passion and aligned with us on that sense? Construction and housing is an important industry. It's a legacy industry, which hasn't had a ton of innovation. There's a lot of room for startups to build creative solutions. What's giving you the optimism to say that this is going to be a huge opportunity in the next few years for founders to build new businesses? I absolutely love that question. If we just look at the construction industry right now, it is the largest market sector in the world. It's valued at over 18 trillion, going to be valued at 22 trillion in a couple of years, yet it's the least digitized. McKinsey did this report a few years ago where they looked at every industry vertical and how much is that industry investing into their R&D. At the very bottom for least digitized is farming, and right above that is construction. Most industries, on average, they'll invest about 6% of their value into R&D, into actually innovating and improving constantly. Construction invests less than 0.5% of that. It's an immense industry, it's very sleepy, and it's hungry for innovation. It needs it. Why that's exciting today, why now for founders, we're seeing an incredible shift where a lot more VCs are looking at the construction tech industry. There's a lot more capital coming into it. Tiger Global is making big plays right now. A ton of angels are making big plays right now. And the reason is that prop tech, over the past five years, there's been a lot of VCs that have entered the space, started new funds, and we're starting to see that same kind of shift within construction tech. People are paying attention to it. As a founder, now you have a bigger pool of opportunity for funding, but also an immense potential for impact because the construction industry is incredibly archaic. Now, one thing I will say is that the reason for that is because it is very slow to adoption. The construction industry, when it comes to working with GCs and developers, you have to also think that you're working within the bounds of the built environment. You're working with the regulatory process of it. There are other hiccups along the road that that's why it's taken so long, but we see that as an immense opportunity to innovate. 
And that's why Alexandra and myself, when we started this fund, we're very excited that we are operator backgrounds. We have actually worked on construction sites, brought in early stage founders to construction sites to pilot their technologies for the first time and truly understand what it means to work with governments, work with local partners, local developers, and actually be able to innovate from the ground up and pilot these technologies first to prove them and then get other investors on board. So I see the the huge opportunity here. It's a sleepy industry waiting for new ideas to be created by entrepreneurs coming into this space. How is it different for entrepreneurs to build a business in this space compared to other sectors? What advice would you give them? I'd say the the biggest difference is that within the construction industry, it's not like you're building a product like a phone, for example, where you could do a thousand phones as a pilot and test them, iterate, break them, do customer discovery at length. It's very different within the housing industry or within construction as a whole. To do a proof of concept, if you're working in hardware, for example, it's incredibly capital intensive. And you're not going to be building a thousand homes and breaking them and testing and going through that innovation cycle very rapidly. You have to be thinking a little bit differently about what that proof of concept looks like. Early stage VCs, the first thing that they're going to ask you is, what's your MVP? What's your customer traction? At what speed are you building? And it's not the same thing as building software. It's not the same thing as building, again, like a cell phone when it comes to hardware. But you do have to think differently. The whole reason that we started Home Team and one of our case studies is with Icon is we want to be that VC fund that will invest at the early stage. We will invest pre-seed and seed, sometimes pre-revenue, but we will help you do that very first MVP. We know what it takes to get other investors or later stage investors and customers on board. And within the built environment, it's really having that proof of concept that they could look at, they believe in, they know is safe, and has gone through the regulatory process. That's the main differentiator, I would say, with other industry verticals to work in. There are some nuances to this industry that entrepreneurs need to understand. When you meet an entrepreneur for the first time, what questions do you ask them? What are you looking for? It's funny, I know a lot of founders come in with their pitch deck ready. They want to do their 15-minute spiel and then do a Q&A. They saying, have their elevator pitch ready to go. Always. They've memorized it so many times, I could tell that their eyes are not even looking specifically at me. They're just going through the motions. That to me is very robotic. When I meet a founder, especially when we're investing at the earliest stage, we are investing in you as a person and your team. We know that the product that you're pitching today is probably not going to be the same product in two years. We're investing in you as a founder and what you could build. Do we trust you to be making really hard decisions, to be pushing an idea forward when things get really hard? When I first meet a founder, I always say, put the pitch deck away. I want to get to know you first. I've reviewed the pitch deck. I know what the product is. I've looked at your TAM. I've looked at your numbers. I want you to tell me the story of you. From day one, walk me through your journey and why you started this. The reason I do that is to get to know the founder themselves through storytelling. I think it's the best way you get to know somebody right away. But two, I want to know, are you truly passionate about pursuing this one idea? I heard recently, there's a professor at HBS that always asks people who are going between, do I want to be a founder one day or do I want to be in VC? And he says this thing that's, you have to do the shower test. Do you love to deep dive into one idea for the next five to 10 years? Or do you like to be touching a lot of different ideas at once? The way that you could tell if you're one or the other is by the shower test. The founder is thinking about their idea all the time in their sleep, in the shower, outside the shower. 
when I get to meet a founder for the first time, I really want to know what drove their passion to start this idea. Would they pass the shower test? In two years, are you still going to be driving this idea forward with every single ounce of passion you have? This is fascinating. You look for the story in the entrepreneur. You want to get to know that personality. There are so many founders who are coached to tell the story so well and arrive well rehearsed with their stories. We don't get to see their personality. It's good to get out of that slide deck mode and sit down with them to ask about their life. What's the genesis of the story? How did they decide that they should start this company? How did they meet their co-founders? Those stories are very, very interesting. And also how they're doing, because when you invest in a founder as a VC, a big part of your job, on top of you doing portfolio value add and supporting them to get customer traction, other investors, marketing, recruiting, all that stuff that a typical VC does, a big part of your job is to be their therapist. At the end of the day, a founder needs to be on their A game. They need to be feeling their best selves to be actually pursuing their idea at the highest capacity. I need to like to work with you. This is a full relationship that we're about to onboard if I actually invest in you. It's all about that personality that I want to see shine. And I don't want it to be rehearsed. I want to be able to hear your story, ask you questions that you don't typically get, get to see how you are in your toes. That first founders meeting for me is always that. I want to get to know you. And if you pass that test that first time, that's when we get into diligence and really get to understand your business and how you're thinking. What happens next? The next step is really when we onboard onto technical diligence. After that first founders call, we have a cohort of research fellows. Right now, we have a cohort of 18 research fellows. Every six months, we go through a new cohort. A lot of them stay on for the next one. And that's a combination of grad students that are in architecture, engineering, construction, or VC and and PE, but are interested in the impact side of things. And we'll go through their full deck. We'll go through all their materials, their data room, if they've shared that. And really understand in a technical perspective, what problem are they trying to solve? And is their solution the highest leverage solution? After that, we go through a series of knockout criteria that we specifically at home team look at, specifically on the investment side. Does it make sense with how much we would be investing in, what their raise is today, what their valuation is today, other investors on board? We look deeply at competitive analysis. We'll start actually contacting potential customers. Before we even ask them for references, we'll contact people who could be their potential customers and people who are either RLPs or advisors to get their thoughts specifically on the problem and solution. Once we go over that technical side, the technical diligence, we will have another founder's call where I'll also bring Alexandria, my co-founder. The two of us will actually interview more specifically on the founder diligence and the team, and then more questions related to the technical problem, but also the business strategy their go-to-market strategy, how they're thinking about customers, how they're thinking about scaling the company the next year or the next two years, going through their sprints. It's very dependent on what actually they're producing, if it's software, hardware, material science. After that second founder's call, that's when we'll actually dive into deeper diligence. We'll start contacting references, other investors that invested in them or not, customers that they connect us to, other customers that we think could be potential customers, RLPs, our advisors again. And that usually takes another couple of weeks where sometimes we will have third, fourth, fifth meetings with the founders as well as other teammates. That's really when we will come up with our final decision based on all the information we've acquired. Another big thing that founders should always know is that VCs do co-diligence together. Maybe you don't know it, but other VCs that are interviewing you today are talking to other VCs in the space. Especially within construction tech and prop tech, a lot of VCs have relationships with each other. 
and we're sharing notes. Something that you should always know is that these VCs are talking behind the curtains to each other. Alexandra and I, we have operator backgrounds. We've been on construction sites. We really understand the pain points and what the technology takes to solve them. We always bring that perspective. We also bring the perspective of working with governments and doing proof of concept projects, what it takes to do that. Other VCs might have a specialty in insurance tech like yourself or in fintech. They will bring in a different perspective. The reason that we're talking behind the curtains is not so much to gossip about the founders, but really to understand based on our expertise, would we invest and why? We're all sharing notes. I say that so founders know that as you're talking to different VCs, you should really be treating everyone in a good way and know they're talking to each other. Reputation is everything within VC. You want to make sure that you are professional and talking well with different VCs because they're talking to each other. That's right. When a round comes together, it's rarely one VC investing uh, all of the money. There's usually at least two or three investors coming together in that round, sometimes more. So it's important for those VCs to be aligned with the vision of the company. It's actually great to be able to collaborate with a select few investors who believe in the same ideas and have the same values. One of my favorite things about our industry and construction tech is that we're so new in the space. There's such few VCs in the U.S. specifically that only focus on construction tech that everyone's friendly in the sandbox. We're all sharing deal flow. It's very collaborative. I absolutely love being in the space as a VC. For founders, what I would say, another tip that I'm thinking through is a lot of VCs are doing diligence at the same time. Make it easy for them to go through your materials. Meaning one of my favorite founders that I was doing diligence on he made a data room that was spectacular. It was so organized. He had all of his references in one folder. Another folder had the materials that we typically look at, the pitch deck and the demo, and then another folder with frequently asked questions. But he knew the game. He knew that all VCs were going to be looking at this one data room. Make it easy for the VCs to go through your materials. A lot of this takes time. What is your process? Can you give an example of one of your investments? How long did it take from the first meeting to the point where you said, I want to invest in this company. Yeah, so it's really dependent. Every VC is going to tell you, we do this in two to four weeks and that's our goal. Of course, it would be our absolute dream to be able to say we do diligence in just two weeks for every single founder. But it depends so heavily on the relationship at the early stage, how well you know the founder and their technology and how familiar you are with the space. For example, we were recently um, doing diligence on a founder that is very focused on the deposit space. When you're renting, you always have to put down a deposit. And that's an area that we just don't have a lot of information on because that's not our expertise. That diligence just inherently takes more time because we want to become pseudo experts in the space by talking to other VCs, other real estate folks, other LPs who are experts in the space and collecting their thoughts. I'll give an example of a recent investment we made that the whole diligence process took less than two weeks. That would be a short time frame. And then another example that the whole process took probably two to three months. That would be our longest time frame, and not ideal, of course, for the founder. The first example of a very short diligence process was we met a founder that came out of another company, so spinoff from another very large company, and a brilliant, brilliant founder, one of the biggest experts in our space. And we knew that he understood the space very well. He had a high, high reputation. Off the bat, we're already coming into it knowing that he knows what he's doing. His solution to the big problem is probably a correct idea. But what really accelerated the process with him was that one of our research fellows worked for him. We got direct insight into how he is as a manager, as a leader, as an expert. We were really able to dig in quickly 
into him as a founder, the team itself, and all their materials. We were able to ask a lot of questions fast. And again, they were very organized with us. They made it easy for us. They said, we know as a VC, you're probably going to do reference checks. Here's a list of different references that we could give you. Here is a document with frequently asked questions from other VCs. That's how we were able to accelerate the whole process. So this is a company called Parspec, and they're focusing on the supply chain process. That's one of the biggest issues in construction right now. Another example is the very first investment we made in Airworks. They do drone mapping for surveying. They're doing the whole process with a drone, LIDAR scanning, and then computer vision and machine learning to output topographic mapping. With them, the reason it took about two to three months was because we actually knew the founders through MIT DesignX, which is a program at MIT. It's almost like an accelerator program. And I'm a mentor for them. And so I met them through that program and we were just launching Home Team. We were doing diligence while also creating our very first deck to pitch to LPs. Why it took longer for them was because we had to actually close our first round. Something a lot of founders don't understand is that VCs are constantly fundraising. We are investing, we're deploying capital, but we're also on our end fundraising. We understand your pain points of fundraising. Our investments and the timeline of our investments are also dependent on our fundraising cycles and if we're closing around. So with Airworks, they had to keep their round open for us so we could do our first close and then invest in them. It's always really good for founders to ask VCs about their timeline transparently and also understand and be empathetic towards their fundraising goals. That's an important thing. Most entrepreneurs don't think about the other side of the story, where money comes from and whether the VCs are ready, how much they might invest and are they ready with a certain timeline that the startup is operating with. A lot of your conversations, especially the first meeting, doesn't result in a follow-up meeting. You have to say no. What are the most common reasons for you to say, I don't want to invest in this company? The number one reason, going back to what I look for most in founders, is they're just not a fit personality-wise or passion level. One example is if a founder is just really not aligned with our thesis, our thesis being that we think construction technology is a prerequisite to housing. If they're just not aligned, for example, their customer base is for high net individuals only, then that's just going to be an automatic no for me. Another thing that we always look at in that first call is speed. When you're investing at the earliest stage, something that is super important is speed. How quickly does the founder work? If they just came up with their idea three months ago and they're talking to you and they already have a pitch deck and they already have customers in mind or a pipeline of customers, and you could tell that 24-7 they are thinking about this idea and they are just trying to move very quickly and very efficiently, that's something that I really look for. If I could tell that you are just taking longer to do things or you're not necessarily trying to think of your traction, that's something that automatically to me is a red flag because within VC, if you're going to traditional VCs, meaning that most are looking for at least 3x returns, it's all about speed. We want to make sure that we're going to have an exit in the next few years. Whenever you're pitching to someone, no matter what you're pitching, you have to think about the incentive of that person. The incentive of a VC at the end of the day is, will I make my returns to my LPs, to my investors and my fund? Speed is probably the number one quality in a founder to make sure that actually happens. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. This is very candid. You're giving specific details on what entrepreneurs can do when they go to meet a a VC. And if they're more aligned with their mission and their values, then there's a better fit with those firms. I want to switch to the next part of our conversation and ask you about your community involvement. Is there a nonprofit organization you are passionate about? Which one? I'm very biased because I used to work there, but New Story Charity is my favorite nonprofit. 
New Story Charity is one of the first and few nonprofits to go through Y Combinator. They're focusing on eradicating homelessness using innovation. Over the last six years, they've partnered with federal governments all over Central and South America, in Bolivia, Haiti, El Salvador, and Mexico, to actually build affordable housing communities. They've built about 25 of these housing communities. They're en route to build for a million people by 2030 in Mexico specifically. By building these communities with governments at a municipal, state, federal level, they could truly understand by walking the walk themselves, what are the biggest barriers in housing and what are technologies we could bring in to solve these barriers? I came on to the New Story team full-time to launch an R&D program. The idea being that there's a lot of innovation out there already. We don't need to start from scratch as a team. Can we convince these early stage founders to partner with New Story and pilot their technologies for the very first time in our housing communities so that one, we could actually direct these founders at the earliest stage to work in the impact space, but two, help them scale their business because now they have a proof of concept that they've deployed in a lower barrier area, let's say rural Mexico, then they could actually have this MVP that they could showcase to investors and to customers. An example was when we actually invested as a nonprofit into Icon. Icon is now the leader in 3D printing. Back when we met the founders, they had half of a printer in their backyard, and they said that they believed that they could build a house in 12 hours with a 3D printer. And they wanted to 3D print the very first house in history. We said, we would love to partner with you. How can we help? How can we bring you down to Mexico, for example, and build that first community? They said, to do that, we need capital. And so we had to convince our nonprofit board to allow us to actually write the very first outside check into ICON. We were then able to permit the first 3D printed home in history in Austin, Texas, then brought the printer down to Mexico where we built an entire community of homes, again, for the first time in history. And what I love about this example is that we did this for the homeless. We did this for communities that are living with less than $3 a day. And what happened afterwards was absolutely incredible. Apple TV did a documentary. It's in a docu-series called Home, and we're in episode nine, the season finale called Mexico really walking through the journey of how did a small startup and a small nonprofit build the first 3D printed home in history and community? And who are we serving? Who are the end users? It's just a beautiful story. Icon just closed their Series B at a huge valuation. They're doing very well in a business perspective while also driving massive impact in housing. This was truly our case study, what we did with Icon and truly pursuing this double bottom line approach that launched the idea of home team ventures. We said, we have about 50 R&D partners spanning all academia, industries, early stage founders. And their number one request is they're early stage and they need capital to actually scale. We did with this icon. Can we do this with other founders? Can we scale this idea of investing in innovation first for impact? So we put a pitch deck together of a fundraising arm for R&D, which very quickly became the idea of Home Team Ventures. One year ago is when we actually launched this idea. And it's a $20 million fund, and we'll be investing in 20 portfolio companies at the earliest stage. What an amazing story. We've come full circle back to how Home Team got started. Congratulations on launching the firm. It is a much needed solution in the market. We need better construction solutions, better real estate solutions to bridge that gap. Good luck in finding the best entrepreneurs to invest in. I hope we find opportunities to collaborate as well. Thank you so much for sharing candid stories and real-life examples based on your investments. Thank you so much for having me and for creating this podcast. It's 
absolutely incredible to be helping underrepresented founders in the space. Thank you for listening to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. I hope you enjoyed listening to real life stories about early believers supporting ambitious entrepreneurs. Please subscribe to the podcast and post a review. Your comments will help other entrepreneurs find this podcast. I look forward to catching you at the next episode.